Well, with uh, Pastor Roger saying, how y'all doing? I thought with Richard here from Sydney, we might say, g'day mate, how's it going? <laughs> so you can get away with a fake Australian accent as an American amongst Americans. It would never fly. Sounds legit, but they'd laugh at me if I did that. After that flight, you must be flat out like a lizard drinking, right? So, um, but I thought, uh, I thought uh, I might remind you of just how young Pastor Henry used to be, just a, a, fun, way to, a fun way to start. So we were, um, I have proof that, okay, there we go. He's behind that square. So this is uh, in, our, in our seminary days, and uh, when things were a lot younger, before I reveal this, uh, I told you guys this a, a number of years ago, and I preached of it. He used to. We both. We were both sort of rappers, um, <laughs> and uh, it's a bit of a bond. And uh, his uh, his name or his handle was Big Bank Hank, right? <laughs> so I never I never call him Henry. Like when I email him, I just say, "Hey, Big Bank, you know what's up?" So he's P H to you. I guess he's uh, P B B H to me, but. Uh, there he is, the young Henry. Woo! And that's proof we were all young once. And uh, that's one of my graduations. But it's a privilege to be here, actually, to see the new building. Last time I was at the old one. So uh, it's a bigger privilege, though, to bring God's word to you and to talk to a living God in prayer. So why don't we pray to God before we open his word? Okay. Lord, we, uh, we come to you now trusting again. In your power, humble and heal us this hour in Jesus' name. Lord, teach us this morning that prayer is not a button to be pushed, but a relationship to be pursued. Teach us not to treat you like a vending machine or a genie in a lamp, trying to manipulate you to our ends, our kingdom come. But Lord, your will be done. Help us repent of our ways and our failures in seeking your face. Open our hearts to your grace. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the children are dressed and ready for school, but there's neither food nor money for breakfast. That's what Chris Wright, the orphanage assistant, told George Mueller, founder and headmaster of an orphanage in Bristol, England, uh, with no options before them that morning. George walked into the dining room to 300 kids and said, children, I don't want you to be, that's a bad place to stand, <laughs> children, I don't want you to be late for school, so let's pray. Dear God, thank you for what you are going to provide. Amen. And they waited. That's all they could do was wait. With no options before them on that morning in 1862, they waited on the Lord. And within minutes, there was a knock on the door. And it was the local baker. And he said, I couldn't sleep last night for some reason. I knew you'd need bread, so I made three big batches for you. Here you go. Each a batch of about 100 slices. Soon... There's another knock on the door. Right outside the front of the orphanage, the milkman's wagon broke down. And he said, Mr. Mueller, by the time this wooden wheel, back in the day, by the time this wooden wheel is fixed, all the milk will be, have gone off. Could you use some free milk? Voila. God provided and 300 children at the orphanage had breakfast. That's a well-known, well-documented story, but it's worth repeating. Why? Do you believe God today could do the very same thing and answer prayer the way he did in 1862 for George Mueller and the orphanage? Would you publicly pray such a bold, expectant, totally dependent prayer? The story is worth repeating because, quite frankly, your God is too small. That's the edgy title of a book written by a pastor critiquing our small views of a big God. And you and I far too often diminish the glory of God by downsizing him with our diminished faith. Uh, I've put on a lot of weight since I've been here uh, in San Francisco. 
And I'm convinced most of us do not need to upsize our happy meals. But we do need to upsize our view of God. Uh, A faith that anticipates God to do great things for his glory and for our good. And that kind of a faith finds its expression first and foremost in prayer. Uh, We see this in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 12. It's a passage which reacquaints us with a big God who answers big prayers sometimes in very unexpected ways. And the central point is this. We always try to distill our sermons at Grace Bible Church into a sentence. And here's the main idea of what I'd like you to remember. Keep your chin up, but your knees down. When we pray fervently, God works powerfully according to his good, and perfect will. That's what I think this passage is teaching us. It's not a comprehensive sermon about prayer and the doctrine of prayer and conditions to answered prayer and definitions of all that. It's just an encouragement to trust in a big God. Uh, Our outline suggests two common ways that we diminish God by believing your God is too small to deliver it all and your God is too small to to deliver miraculously. Hopefully that's in your outline. I didn't look, but hopefully it's in reverse order, the outline, because I'd actually like to address those in reverse order. Uh, We'll briefly now look at the context of verses 1 to 4, but then I want us to come back at the end because there's a lingering question. What about prayer and poor James? Okay, so we'll return to verses 1 through 4 at the end. Uh, Now for the context. Look at verse 1. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, there's a lot of Herods in the Bible. So the Herod spoken of here is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod in charge of Palestine or Israel when Jesus was born. He's famous, famous for trying to murder baby Jesus, killing all the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. He also killed his own wife and his own son not long after his grandson, Herod Agrippa, was born. So Herod Agrippa, you know, he's just keeping treachery and murder in the family line, all right? So we see in verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Politics is a strange thing. If you remain popular, you remain in power. Herod's uh, grandmother was a Jewish princess. He had some Jewish blood in his veins. The Jews killed Jesus, king of the Jews, and the world, and king of kings. But then Herod kills James, who's a leader of this Jesus mob called Christians. And so the Jews are really popular. So, oh, that's a great idea. I'll arrest Peter, too. Politics are weird. The more scandalous you are, the more popular you become. And uh, sorry, but living overseas, all I can think of is two words. Donald Trump. (laughs) Just mind-boggling. Anyway, we press on. Um, Verses 3 and 4. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, to bring him out to the people on trial. Now, the church is shaking in its boots. James, their leader, has been martyred. Peter, second in charge here, he's now in prison. These are not comfortable, comforting times for the church. But they learned something. They learned to pray. And it's so obvious what they learn, because can you think of another time in the Bible, just like verses 3 and 4, where there was an urgent call to pray on the night of the Passover, an arrest was made, and there was a court trial the next day? Anything ringing a bell? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's an urgent call to pray, and what did the disciples do? What, you tell me, what did they do? They fell asleep, right? So... Um, That's tragic. But now, here they are. Things have changed, haven't they? They they slept and they abandoned Jesus at his arrest. They've learned, rather than scattering, they're gathering. And rather than sleeping, they're praying. 
praying through the night. See, it's an 11th hour here for Peter. There's no Amnesty International. But these guys, the disciples, they weren't gathered to say, okay, how can we form, you know, maybe mafia style, do a prison break, right, and bust Peter out. Let's take a big offering and see who we can bribe to get Peter out. No. They prayed against the desires of a powerful dictator because they knew God had the real power. They'd learned. But were they trusting God to answer his way according to his good and perfect will? That's a lesson they needed to learn that we're going to see. So it's a lesson on how often we need to rebuke our doubtful hearts. And they start, um, we wrongly believe your God is too small to deliver miraculously. Because they weren't expecting this. They were praying, but they had God in a box. Let's look at verse 5. It's commendable. Earnest prayer was being made to God by the church. That's awesome. That word earnest, it speaks of muscles straining and stretching to the point of tearing. Okay? So they're fervently talking to God. They meant business. They knew spiritual war was in front of them. So kudos for that. But they had God in such a box they actually could not believe his form of deliverance. They saw it and didn't believe it. Let's, let's, let's learn about this. Now, I hope you didn't watch, and maybe you've heard of, the show Touched by an Angel. Right? It wasn't worth watching. Trust me. It's bad theology. Like It's like an angel of light of the dark side. But you probably heard of Touched by an Angel. Acts 12 could be called Rescued by an Angel. Okay? Even Peter didn't believe this at first. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, uh, that's for trial, for judgment, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, sentries guarding the prison. It's overkill here on, on guards. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Come on, get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter did so, but, but Peter did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. So he was either too tired after being woken up, or he just had a wrong view of angels. Sort of like, you know, we tend to have a Hollywood view of angels, like warm and cuddly and sort of thing, like uh, Clarence Oddbody, that kind but bumbling amateur angel who tried to help uh, George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life and didn't do a very good job. Or there's, you know, the ear-tickling Pollyanna style of angel, if you could call her that, Monica, and touched by an angel who pretty much fulfills everyone's whims and justifies everyone's sins. And in that picture, we see, yeah, right, Fantasy Island is more real and likely than them. But the Bible is clear about angels. They're not cuddly. Uh, they're not sappy like the Hollywood ones. They're special agents of God. And they're given a number of tasks. They worship God uh, with, regarding people. Sometimes they're dispatched by God to inflict well-deserved judgment on people, other times to rescue now, for Christians, the book of Hebrews gives sort of one overarching purpose statement for angels and their relationship with us. All angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So that includes you if you're born again. Peter finally clues in. He's now completely free of Herod's clutches. He's out, outside in verses 10 and 11. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened up for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Peter came to himself and said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. See, with no human means of escape, God provides a non-human form of deliverance. Miraculous deliverance through an angel. God hears and God powerfully answers the fervent prayer of his people. His children, doubtful children, who like Peter at first 
don't get it, really? See, sometimes it takes a moment like Peter to realize, wow, God's doing something amazing here. Other times it could take a year to recognize God's work. Amazing, miraculous intervention. We do need to be cautious about testimonies with the Internet these days. You know, you've heard the email from, I know, a second cousin of a friend who knows 27 people who are in this unnamed country somewhere, and God did this amazing. We've got to be careful with those. But when there's verified testimonies, they're really encouraging. We need to, we need to be encouraged by them, like that of John Patton. He's a, a 19th century missionary to the New Hebrides, or now Vanuatu, uh, he was preserved powerfully by God through a lot of persecution by cannibals. I mean, hunted many times. And he wrote an autobiography, and he translated the New Testament into Aniwa, their language. And uh, by the way, before I share this story, he's a Scottish Reformed Presbyterian, not a, not a Pentecostal, okay? So this is Billy Graham's words summarizing the story from John Patton's biographies. Two volumes, like 700 pages. I've read some of it, but not all of it. <laughs> so here's a good summary. Hostile natives surrounded his mission headquarters one night, intent on burning the Pattons out of their house to kill them. John Patton and his wife prayed all during that terror-filled night, praying that God would deliver them. When daylight came, they were amazed to see the attackers had unaccountably left. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Jesus Christ, and Mr. Patton, remembering what had happened, asked the chief... What had kept his men from attacking his house, the mission station? And the surprised chief said, well, of course, it was all those men you had with you guarding you. And he said, it was only myself and my wife in the home. And he said, no, we saw men in shiny garments and swords surrounding the mission station, so we didn't attack. It was a year later that Patton realized God must have sent angels that were to them not seen. And the chief agreed there could be no other explanation. Sometimes it takes us a while to catch up and see how big God is. In verse 12, after Peter clues in, he goes and tells the disciples. Peter realized this, that's the angelic deliverance. So he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and they were praying. They were still in fervent prayer. They weren't asleep. Peter must have been so encouraged until he he knocked, right? Verses 13 to 15. Now, at first, it's sort of encouraging. It gets worse. So he knocks, verse 13, at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported, Peter is standing at the gate, You know that sense of excitement you have when you just sort of drop everything to go share something exciting with somebody, like a child coming back from walking the dog, right? And the mailman's there with a long-awaited package, and they run to the house. Mom, Dad, the package is here. The package is here. And they're like, great. Where's the package? And where's the dog, right? You sort of drop everything. You're so excited. That's what she does. She doesn't even think to open the gate. Rhoda, in her joy, ran and reported, Peter is here. How did the disciples reply? Praise God, a big God who answers big prayers. I wish. They're much more like us, verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it's, it's his angel. Now, isn't that ironic? They were happy enough to recognize the reality of angels. It must be his angel. But they weren't rec- happy to recognize that an angel could do anything useful, like being God's answer to prayer to deliver Peter. See, what's going on here is the disciples were effectively saying to Rhoda, Don't bother us with the answers while we're making the requests. They can't recognize God's deliverance because it doesn't fit with their box view of God. It doesn't fit their expectations about how God should have answered. I don't know what they expected. A 
you know, a chariot or a horse and wagon to crash in the jail and make a way for Peter to walk out. Who knows? But Peter, verse 16, continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Is that you? Don't bother me with the answers, God, while I'm making the request. I mean, what's it like when you pray and God answers your prayer? Are you stunned, amazed, shocked like the disciples in verse 16? You're out of your mind, Rhoda. What does that reveal about our faith and our, our view of God, that he cares and that he listens and that he answers prayer? Do you think God can deliver through any means he chooses? If not, your God is too small. I don't want our focus only to be on angels. There is one used here in Acts 12 and elsewhere, but God uses unexpected means to bless and deliver his fervently praying people. And what's encouraging, it does that even when our view of God is too small and our faith is weak. You know, he's so gracious to our small faith. But he needs to challenge us. He needs to rebuke us because when we have a small God, we stop praying for big things. That's why we need to have a big view of God. These were big things. Peter's neck was on the line. John Patton and his wife's life and mission were on the line. But see, in both cases, something bigger was at stake. The gospel going forth through them. See, look at verse 24. We're not covering that per se, but the result of this story is the word of God increased and multiplied. See, God loves to bless kingdom-focused prayers, not... I want a Cadillac or a Mercedes-Benz, thank you very much, kind of prayers, but kingdom-focused prayers. Are you expectant of a big God answering big kingdom-focused prayers? Praying for this city, and it's tough to come back to this city after being overseas. It's a dark place. But are you praying expectantly that God will bring revival and repentance through the gospel to San Francisco? Are you expectant when you pray, God, use me today at work, at, at school, in the neighborhood, to start spiritual conversations, God, stir in the souls of people to have interest in spiritual eternal things? Are you actually expectant when you pray and you go to invite someone to a church service, an outreach night, a youth group, uh, maybe an evangelism course that you run, and you pray, are you expectant that God will incline their hearts and say, yes, I'd love to come with you? It's because those are the kinds of prayers, big prayers, kingdom prayers, that God delights to say yes to. Despite the repeated insults and peer pressure, Verse 15 says, Rhoda kept insisting. She kept insisting. No, God has answered our prayers. I just love that. And Peter in verse 17 described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison and said, tell these things to the brothers. Get the word out. God is great. God is mighty to answer and to deliver. Jim Elliott is a missionary who uh, just put this so well. He said, Father, this is in light of God being so big. He says, Father, forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know such an extraordinary God. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be just a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork in the road that men must turn one way or another when facing Christ in me. That's just a great prayer. But big prayers aren't just about verbally um, expressing the gospel. Anything crucial to your Christian testimony, really big-ticket items, are big issues. Uh, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men so they may see what? Your good works and glorify God in heaven, right? So it's both... 
um, lipping the gospel and living the gospel. So any major issue of your life that speaks as a good deed is important. And I think in our age with broken homes and families and marriages, a holy, healthy marriage is just a powerful thing for the gospel. And uh, rather than whining and gossiping and griping about our relationships, I really like, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie War Room yet. It's got a few little issues, but overall it's a great call to pray. And it's, it's a call to say victory is found in surrendering to God in his perfect will. And um, this is a good advice shared. I'm going to show a clip from Miss Clara. It's the only she can say it the way she does. So let's listen to her about the role that prayer makes. There's two brief clips, like a 40-second one, then like a 10-second one, back to back. So. Makes all these little flirtatious comments to other I, women I, that just Elizabeth. makes... Just so I know, how much of the one hour we got together today are you going to spend whining about your husband and how much we going to spend on what the Lord can do about it? I'm sorry, Miss Clara. I just get so wound up the more I think about it. He acts like an enemy to me. See, you're fighting the wrong enemy. Now, your husband certainly has his issues, but he's not your enemy. Who said that it was your responsibility to fix Tony? It's your job to love him, to respect him, and to pray for the man. God knows he needs it. And men don't like it when their women's always trying to fix them. Elizabeth, you got to plead with God so that he can do what only he can do. Now, if you want victory... You're going to have to first surrender. God is a good defense attorney. Trust it to him. And you need to do your fighting in prayer. That is just advice that we just need to hear again and again, because by nature we are so self-reliant. And I don't know if you, like me, I hope this doesn't happen here at San Francisco Bible. I've been in a number of one-hour prayer meetings in my life. Maybe you've experienced some of these where the first 55 minutes is sharing prayer requests, which honestly is more like whining and griping. Um, and then the last five minutes are praying. And it sort of betrays, well, I'm really there to vent and, uh, you know, get some sympathy versus let's bring, our, let's bring our needs to God, a big God, and trust him. We need to stop whining. Start praying. We stop, start remembering Paul's words to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think. God can deliver anywhere, anytime, any way. If you think that your marriage is beyond rescue, your God is too small. If you think your children who are wayward are beyond redemption... Your God is too small. If you think your unemployment situation, your school scenario and grades, whatever, is hopeless, your God is too small. So keep your chin up. Hope in the Lord, but keep your knees down. Praying. And not just vaguely. So we get to the nitty-gritty of this. Battles, including spiritual battles, are won with a strategy. Uh, as Don Carson, a, a pastor, once put it, you do not drift into spirituality. We need to fight. You probably have a workout strategy. You probably have a financial strategy, maybe an educational strategy, a diet strategy. I need one. Um, do you have a prayer strategy? Do you have a time and a place that in a battle mindset you have said, I need to set apart a time and a place to pray regularly? Do you use helpful apps uh, like to help you organize and, and stay consistent in your prayer life? I tell you what, prayer has been a, a challenge throughout my Christian life to be effective. I'm a spontaneous person, and I need structure and organization. And a particular app I found so helpful, it's not even though it has mate in it, it's not from Australia, prayer mate, 
Um, it's just called Prayer Mate. I said that so you'll remember it. Um, <laughs> but it's free. It's Windows, uh, Android, and uh, Apple. Um, you can, once you put the date in, you can set so many things. Do you want two people from your family, one elder, somebody from your discipleship group, whatever, special needs you have? Create as many categories as you want. How many you want to pop up each day? You can adjust it constantly. You can work in scripture to read with it and pray through things. Just brilliant. It's helped me so much. I pray that you'll use something like prayer mate to help you get structured and have a battle mindset and a prayer strategy. Holly, maybe this is a year for you to finally get serious about a journal, what we could call a Rhoda record, right? Something that keeps insisting God is faithful. God has answered, where you actually not only say, you might write down your thoughts and your requests, but you write down God's answers to those requests. And remember his faithfulness, and you keep insisting and telling others, God is great, he has answered. And Jim Elliott, who I quoted a bit earlier, he reminds us we need that kind of a record when tough times come, because then it's hazy, it's hard for us to see God clearly in those tough times. This is what he writes. He says, the will of God is sweet tonight, <laughs> altogether good and acceptable and perfect. This is in his, his journal. The considerate love of the Lord Jesus for us seems so kind now. I know it has always been so, but sometimes I don't see how wise it was when it didn't seem kind Remind me of this at times when I cannot regard his love as considerate. And this is our transition to that second point, coming back to verses 1 to 4. Another key prayer strategy is to cast aside doubts that your God is too small to deliver at all. See, there's a lingering question. What about prayer And poor James. Uh, These short verses cast a long shadow. Verses 1 and 2. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James's martyrdom barely gets a mention. One tiny verse. And so as we apply this message, we can't just focus on God's deliverance of Peter and ignore God's non-deliverance of James, if we call it that. This is where the last part of our main idea is crucial. When we pray fervently, God works powerfully according to his good and perfect will. That's not a cop-out. It's saying God is sovereign, and he knows best, and we don't. His will is always good and perfect. We need to believe that. Did the church pray at James's arrest? We don't know. The text doesn't say. If they did pray, I'll tell you what they would not have been thinking. Oh, I feel so guilty because the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And we didn't ask God to deliver James. See, if they did pray, they wouldn't have thought that. Their conscience would have been clear burden cast upon a God whose will is good and perfect. If they did not pray, I tell you what, James's martyrdom awakened them to the spiritual battle before them. We actually need those wake-up calls, and that motivated them to pray for Peter. See, there are some things a sovereign God ordains to wait to give until we ask. You have not because you ask not. Prayer still matters. Don't ignore it. But honestly, ask yourself, are you praying, thy will be done, or my will be done? Are we singing, he is exalted, or me is exalted? See, God's will is bigger than us. I'm stunned at how constant these things are next to each other in the Bible. John 11, it says, the Lord loved Lazarus. And in the verse right next to it, it says, Lazarus's sickness is for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. 
God's good and perfect will is in harmony with, sorry, God's good and perfect will is in harmony with our good, not in conflict with it. But notice I, I said God's, God's will and our good. I didn't say God's will and our comfort. Those are different things. God's good purposes surpass at times our comfort. His will trumps ours. Praise him for that. I've got to confess, this is what my family, my extended family, has been thrown into the deep end in learning recently. Uh, as we have been wrestling with God, how do we pray regarding mom, B, uh, regarding God's timing and taking her home from cancer? You see, our comfort and her comfort, because she's been saying, Fide, 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 right? Now, Lord, quick, take me. Our comfort and her comfort says, Lord, take her now, please. Now. But God's delay, from our perspective, it's a delay, human perspective, has brought around new opportunities that he has done so much good in. I tell you what, for, for B's children and grandchildren to see, to witness her suffer and die to the glory of God has been irreplaceable. You, you cannot put a high, high enough value or quantity on that privilege to see a Christian suffer and die to the glory of God. I'm so glad my daughter's been here to, to witness that from Grandma. But also God's brought powerful opportunities for B to share the gospel with her non-Christian siblings one final time as they visit her sick. And I tell you, probably the greatest gospel impact is felt when unbelievers witness a Christian dying with incredibly powerful peace and hope. Because it just doesn't register with them. Like, how can you do that? I don't understand. You might be asking, okay, well, I get how, you know, maybe somebody could die to the glory of God, but how could dying be for our good? Well, just remember what Paul, with that profound peace, he, he, on death row in prison for proclaiming Christ, what does he say to the church in Philippi? He says this, he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it will be more fruitful for you that I remain in the body. Now, I realize through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this likely will turn out for my deliverance. Yet I'm not sure what to choose. I don't know. He's saying, it was, if it was up to me, and if I asked you to pray for me on death row, I don't know what I'd choose. Because it's gain for me to die. He's saying, my ultimate good is to be in my eternal home, face to face with this Lord we sung about. Uh, my life is hid with Christ on high earlier, like... Bring it, Lord. We're going to see him as he is. No sin, no curse. That is our good. And that's how dying can be for our ultimate good in Christ. But it's also for the good of others and for the glory of God. Because this is what Paul says a few verses earlier. He says, I, I really want you to know what's happened has really served to advance the gospel. The, the whole imperial guard knows my prayers are too small because my view of God is too small. I want to tie this second point together is God's too small to deliver it all with it with another illustration. It's, it's timely. Um, it's from Jim Elliott's life, and I've quoted him deliberately because this is actually the 60th anniversary of a, a very sort of famous staggering day when five missionaries who were sent uh, with so young, so much potential these guys had, they were sent uh, to the Amazon forest in Ecuador to bring the gospel of peace to the most violent tribe that anthropologists had ever come across, the Waodani people. Uh, 
They were sent out. They prayed earnestly. And God worked mightily. But not at all how they expected. Not at all. The most famous of these men was Jim Elliot, probably best known because his wife Elizabeth wrote a book about their story called Through Gates of Splendor. He died at only 28 years old. Nate Saint was the 32-year-old pilot from um, Mission Aviation Fellowship uh, who figured out a way in those little prop planes where if you fly it in a small circle with centripetal force, you could actually lower a bucket on a rope and put food and treats and try to, you know, build a bit of rapport with people because these are the most violent tribe ever known to anthropologists. And they did that for three months. They just circled around. They had a bullhorn. They were taught a bit of Waodani by a Waodani tribe member who uh, learned English and uh, came to the West. And they just shouted little friendly phrases. And finally, after, uh, after three months of circling, they, they went down and landed, and they had a few friendly visits with the Waodani. But then the five men were speared to death. Um, That is not at all what they had hoped for or prayed for or expected. Uh, But did their martyrdom end the gospel work in Ecuador? Was this defeat? I mean, come on, God, didn't you hear their prayers? And where were the angels then? How come there were none? Well, who says there were no angels? See, Nate's little son, Steve, who was in Ecuador at the time his dad was killed, Steve writes about how Min Kayani, who was the tribe leader, would one day tell him that when the five missionaries were killed, many who were fighting and spearing them to death, uh, they heard singing, and they saw these what they call uh, bright people along the ridge right above, right above the river singing beautifully. And they recognized, they were in fear, and they recognized something supernatural was going on. And they also realized these guys had guns, but they did not defend themselves. And so they knew they'd done wrong. We attacked them unprovoked. They gave us stuff. They didn't defend themselves when they could have, and we killed them. So they actually went to the camp, found the missionary camp, and invited uh, Nate's sister, Rachel, and Elizabeth Elliott back to their camp brave, courageous thing to do and bring the kids, and they shared Christ with them. And they heard the message of Jesus and why these men didn't defend themselves, and then it all clicked. These, these angels who were over the ridge, this is a thing of God, and, the, and they trusted in Christ, and the majority of the tribe repented and believed. Absolutely no is the answer. Did the gospel stop in Ecuador with their martyrdom? Did it put an end to foreign missions around the world? Oh, you know, it's dangerous. We won't do missions. Are you kidding? In direct response to their martyrdom, 25 pilots immediately replied to take Nate Saint's place in Ecuador. And a 1,000 new missionary applications came in. You see, God, his will is good and perfect, and he's bigger than us, and he's bigger than our comfort. All grown up, Steve Saint moved back. He brought his whole family back to live in Ecuador with the Waodani tribe to disciple the people who killed his father. And within a few years, the first, uh, the first of the first Waodani turning to Christ, the gospel so transformed the tribe, the homicide rate, according to anthropologists, not Christians, dropped 90%. Jesus transformed their culture. And uh, I don't know if you saw the movie made, I don't know, 10 years ago. Uh, It's called The End of the Spear. Uh, A a great movie, and I just want to show you a brief clip. It's a reenactment of what happened um, when Steve, the the young boy who's now grown up, Minkayani, he's recounting when they find the wreckage of his dad's plane in in the beach, and Minkayani tells him about these angels and and what happened. So uh, let's let's watch this. This is it. This is where it happened. 
बाबा बता My father lost his life at the end of the spear. And it was at the end of the spear that Minkayani and I found ours. It's true that my dad and his four friends were not given the privilege of watching their children and grandchildren grow up. But Minkayani is a grandfather. It's the first time in Wadani history they've ever had so many grandfathers. He's not only a grandfather to his own children, he's a grandfather to mine. My dad would have liked that. Through the years, people could always identify with our loss, but they could never imagine the way that we would experience gain. love that phrase. People could identify with our loss, but they don't understand the gain of seeing deep forgiveness and gospel transformation. So pray. Trust in a big God. Whatever your trials are at the moment, God's will is good and perfect, but not always comfortable. But find comfort in this. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil, and willingly so. You see, they struggled to think, well, you're breaking our expectations, God. You sent an angel to deliver Peter. God sent his son to take on flesh, live the perfect life, so he could die the perfect death in our place on a cross, so we could be saved. Now that shatters every expectation. God is so good and trustworthy. Just a word to those who may not yet be trusting in Jesus Christ. A choice must be made. See, we're all glory thieves. We rob God of his glory. And uh, as hard as the truth is to hear in this age, our day, our day is a shocking day where we uh, aggrandize selfishness and self-glory. And what surprises me most, it's almost tragic now, it's worse to judge evil today than to do evil. I just find that shocking. But the angel that struck Peter awake to rescue him is also the angel that struck Herod dead because he would not give God the glory. So we've got to repent of our sins, of our glory thievery. What a God. Jesus died so that your shame and guilt could be taken away. And I pray that you remember you have a choice to make. See, it's, these aren't just nice thoughts about a nice God. We'll be judged, and without Jesus, we'll fall short. You need to choose this day whom you'll serve and to whom you'll give the glory, yourself or Christ. And I pray that you'll repent and trust in him. You see that precious personal peace that Paul had only comes when it's preceded by a, per, a vertical peace between God and man through Jesus. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. 
Let me just close with this, the whole, the whole sermon. This chapter opens with what? With James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. But it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the gospel triumphing. What we need to take home is whether it's our deliverance or our death, God is sovereignly triumphing for his glory and our good. Uh, you might have a short life shortened by cancer, by martyrdom. And if that's the case, may Jesus Christ be praised, and may you pray what Jim Elliot prayed. I seek not a long life, but a full one like yours, O Lord. And God answered his prayer and used him greatly, but maybe not the way he expected. And if God blesses you with a long life, like George Mueller, 93 years old, till he died, uh, till his dying day, he was evangelizing in Bristol. He was working at 93 and living at the orphanage. And uh, his obituary from the Liverpool Mercury, after listing all the things that the orphanage had accomplished, these amazing provisions from a guy who never, ever asked, appealed for any funds, and God just provided through prayer. The obituary said, How were these wonders accomplished? Mr. Mueller has told the world it was the result of God answering prayer. The rationalism of the day will sneer at this declaration, but the facts remain. May this be our testimony when we trust in a big God. Will you pray with me? Sovereign God, we praise you. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Lord, the likes of us, creatures who rebel against a good and holy creator, and more than just being mindful of us, you became one of us. You died for us. You know our pain because you took our pain and punishment upon yourself to save us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we don't always get our way because we don't know what's best. You do. And when you do answer no to our prayers, or when we hear no answer at all, help us, God, to remember that just because you're silent doesn't mean you're absent. Help us to walk away confident in your good and perfect will and your power to accomplish it. Help us to walk away with a prayer strategy, committed to battle, committing to do what you call us to do as your people, to depend on you in prayer and see what marvels you will do when we ask of you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray to you, our big God.